Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored by Manolatis Nelson Murphy, Advertising and Public Relations. M&M brings decades of experience and their vast network to you. The firm develops insightful strategies and cost-effective tactics to help clients achieve their goals and connect to those who matter most. M&M specializes in media relations, community engagement, crisis communications, and cross-platform marketing. Learn more at mnmadpr.com. Nate. Caller ID, yeah, he just answered it as Nate. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Scott. This Nate. has gone terribly. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Are you, are you Hello? idiots? What's the matter hey, with you? Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you guys? We're good. I'm sitting in your chair. Are you just calling me right now? We were on? discussing prank calling you, so naturally <laughs> Nate called you from his own phone. <laughs> Things, things are going well, I see. Yeah, it's going great. Scott, it appears that a group of people who grew up after the end of landlines don't <laughs> realize the significant part of a prank call is the mystery of where the call is coming from. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You also yeah. have to have like like a joke or something. Some yes. kind of like right. Some kind of bit. I right. was saying that That's it should be a exactly donor interested in like donating but like saying you have to be wall to wall like coverage of something dumb butts and, I'd be all in man and then you'd go all in and we'd all be horrified and yeah be like, we can't air that <laughs> I was gonna go with um hey Scott this is your boss um you're fired Adriana's taking over Voice of San Diego and um you can get your stuff it's it's done you're... Oh, and then Scott would be like, oh, oh. man. <laughs> I'd be guess... like, oh, all right, let's do this. I guess I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Scott, did we get the $45 he flew across country for? <laughs> Are we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Went great. I'm, right. I'm glad you care about me. Thank you. Bye. We miss you. Bye. Okay, bye. I'm in Dallas. Does anybody want anything from Dallas? Meat. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Andrew Keats, assistant editor at Voice of San Diego, and I am joined by our managing editor, Sarah Libby. What's up, bud? And big news. Big news. We are also joined by multimedia producer and DJ Chica, Adriana LDs. What's up? <laughs> uh, that means that Scott Lewis is not here. He's yeah. out. He'll be back next week. Forget about Scott. Scott's over. We had had, we had, had an idea. We, what had happened was we had an idea. <laughs> and it was a good one. It was that we were going to do a full segment as like a morning zoo radio program. Yes. Wherein our signature bit for the week would be that we called in a prank call to scott lewis yeah um we didn't actually end up coming up with a premise for the prank call right 
which was part of the problem. Uh, we later learned that the other part of the problem is our young staffers here, having only grown up in a world with cell phones yeah. that have caller ID on it, don't seem to understand a okay, critical a element of a, of a prank call. Yeah, no. So our producer <laughs> just called Scott on his phone. On and his Literally phone. the first thing Scott said was like, oh, hey, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> it was a re- remarkable was, prank call strategy of revealing your identity yeah, before the a, call begins. A remarkable <laughs> cell phone. Yeah, that's a lot because I remember dial up. You do. I do. Okay. Yeah. There so you, you know, I was like so ready for like the air horn yes. when we reveal <laughs> that it's actually us. Yeah. Uh, so, really... so which one is it that like blocks your number? Star sixty nine or? Or star sixty. Star sixty seven blocks your number. And then Star sixty nine you can You can call dial and see who, who it just was called you. If you didn't have caller ID. Yeah. What a world. Mm. It was great. <laughs> All right, coming up on the show today, we will review what lawmakers from San Diego have been up to and the big impact that they're making in Sacramento now that the governor has finished his bill signing spree. We have an update on inclusionary housing. Uh, it is just barely hanging on. This is the big policy priority for City Council President Georgette Gomez as she embarks on a congressional run. So we'll talk about that and what it actually means for making new homes in San Diego. And a school bond that was passed in 2016 made rich schools richer. We'll talk about Prop 51 and how Governor Jerry Brown was right about how it would work in practice. First, let's begin with Sacramento. Sunday was the last day for Governor Gavin Newsom to sign or veto any bills that were passed this year. Sarah had a great roundup of the bills in the Sacramento report. You can follow everything we're covering in Sacramento with that newsletter. Check check the show notes to sign up for that. Uh, In the meantime, Sarah, what were you looking out for and what specifically did Newsom end up signing? Yeah. Well, let me get your guys' take first of all. Do you prefer Bill Splosion or Bill Valanche? <laughs> Bill Valanche sounds like an accountant. Like, yeah. Like, uh, can you call Bill Valanche and make sure that like we have our taxes filed on time? Because like the last thing I want to do is have to get an extension. Yeah. They're like, all right, I need Bill Valanche is very also, busy this time of year, but I guess I'll give him a call. It's also kind of great. <laughs> yeah. So, in the latest Bill Valanche, <laughs> let's sort through the debris. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. So, first of all, now we know all the bills that have been signed and all the ones that have been vetoed, all the ones that have been carried over until next year. And so, I think if you're, like, standing on top of the mountain, I think it's fair to say that the three biggest bills that made it into law this year all had San Diego origins. So, my top three would be AB 392. This is the law written by Shirley Weber that limits when police can deploy deadly force. Huge, pioneering, big. It's been two years in the making. You know, she finally got police unions on board. Massive accomplishment. Right. Okay. Are these all bills, sorry, are these all bills that were brought in at the beginning of the year or? Not all of them. So that one was actually proposed last year. And it was carried over until this year because they couldn't get a deal together in time. And so this was the second year. Okay. So... Then that brings us to AB5. This is the law limiting when employers can use independent contractors. Uh, It was written by Lorena Gonzalez. We had her on the show 
recently to talk about how that all went down. Again, just massive, you know, very pioneering. Big enough to receive a personal phone call to Lorena Gonzalez from Elizabeth Warren. Right. And then I think the third one you could argue perhaps in favor of that other bills were a bigger deal. But, but I'm we're not going say, to because going we to. need three for a trend. And <laughs> there you go. if we were to argue otherwise, we wouldn't have three. Certainly the one that caused the biggest commotion in the Capitol as mm-hmm. it was happening was SB 276, mm-hmm. which is the law limiting when doctors can dole out medical vaccine exemptions. So this was written by... Senator Richard Pan, who's a pediatrician, but it was also co-written by Lorena Gonzalez. And um, our journalism had a big role in helping inspire that measure because, if you remember, Will Huntsbury reported that one doctor was responsible for writing almost a third of all the exemptions in San Diego Unified. Did they mention that reporting? They did many times. And so at the beginning and during hearings, it was really trotted out as evidence throughout this process of like the process being broken and the fact that you can essentially just buy these exemptions. Was there anything already in the works before our story came out on this issue? I think that they had been exploring how to deal with medical vaccine exemptions because they'd been growing so much over the last few years. Um, But I think this was really like the catalyst for showing that it needed to be dealt with immediately. Yeah. And and as another San Diego connection that Lorena Gonzalez ended up getting quite a bit of harassment over her support. Yes. For the second time in her career, because there was another vaccine uh, limit bill that she worked on uh, several years ago. And that involved Dharma from Dharma and Greg. As well as Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider is a frequent player in this this (laughs) three-act play of ours. Yeah. I guess one question to ask about this is, is the San Diego delegation more powerful in Sacramento now, um, certainly than it has been in recent years? I think yes. I don't know that it's the most powerful. So you obviously have Tony Atkins as the head of the Senate, which just on its own is a very powerful um, position. She didn't necessarily utilize that position this year um, to push forward many of her own measures. Uh, Probably the biggest uh, bill that she worked on was SB1, which is an environmental bill dealing with the Trump administration that was actually vetoed. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, there were more incremental measures, and I think she was more focused on kind of helping with these others' efforts, such as AB 392. Yeah. Um, and then Lorena is obviously chair of the Appropriations Committee, which is also incredibly powerful because it's essentially the purse strings. It's the one that doles out all the money. Um, Anything so, of significance must come through it, and when things die in the suspense yes. file and appropriations, that is akin to, to actually dying. Yes. And then you also have Shirley Weber, who's just an influential and powerful figure. Certainly a lot of her measures fail because she takes on really ambitious legislation. Um, but I think she's just, you know, a revered person in the Capitol. But there's also, you know, L.A. and San Francisco have their share of really powerful legislators. Yeah. So speaking of San Francisco uh, region legislators, I, I think there would be one other bill as one of the biggest of the year that people might be thinking about that sort of doesn't qualify based on a, uh, right. a technicality, which was SB 50, right? Yes. Uh, so that was passed by 
uh, Senator Weiner. Was or, not excuse passed. me, not passed. Excuse <laughs> me. That was proposed and, by Senator Weiner, and much like as AB three ninety two was turned into a two-year bill. Yes. What's the and bill about again? So this is about uh, building more housing near transit. And it's interesting because it's actually become like quite a contentious point in the San Diego mayor's race, yes. uh, uh, at least initially. Um, I think you, still. Yeah. And also you can catch Senator Weiner at PolitiFest coming up. Get your tickets. Check you the show notes that. for the uh, link to make sure that you can do that. There, He will be there to talk about uh, how to build more housing in California, the subject of SB 50, the bill that we were just describing. All right. So I want to make sure that we shout out two other bills Mm -hmm. that were inspired by our coverage. Okay. So one of them was a bill written by Todd Gloria, Mm -hmm. and it clarifies the role of public health officials. And this was basically a direct response to our coverage of the Hep A crisis and the ways in which you know, officials sort of dropped the ball and had a really hard time coordinating between county and city officials and just sort of let things languish while they focused on, you know, permitting Mm -hmm. and pilot projects and things like that. So that eventually led to a state audit, which led to this bill. Mm -hmm. And then our colleague Maya Sri Krishnan also wrote an investigation which she kind of highlighted how people who had gone in to apply for these state driver's licenses that are available to undocumented immigrants um, soon after encountered federal immigration officials and were caught up in that system. And in some cases, they actually had copies of their driver's license or copies of information that those people had given to the state. Um, And so, you know, this law that was meant to bring immigrants out of the shadows was actually being used against them. Um, in certain ways. And so a bill by Lorena Gonzalez uh, sort of limits the instances in which the state can share information with federal immigration officials. I'll add one more, which is really more of a procedural bill than anything else. It's uh, AB 1730, which was also by Assemblywoman Gonzalez. Uh, this was this is like the cleanup bill. So um, Sandag, after its uh, scandal, with uh, the sub- subject of our coverage for uh, what feels like uh, a quarter of my life, um, they they the new leadership at Sandag came in and said we can't pass another long term transportation plan for this region that meets state greenhouse gas emissions requirements as long as it looks anything like our previous plans. We need to start from scratch, but starting from scratch means we won't be able to meet the state's timeline for when our next measure is due. Um, there, one of the ways they cleaned that up was they had uh, Assemblywoman later, or Lorena Gonzalez carry legislation allowing them basically an extension. Yeah. Uh, so that was passed and was signed by Gavin Newsom. What What was the original like deadline that they had? Was it a the year? The end of this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so you just n- need you need to do it every four years, and ours was up for this year. Got it. So now it's yeah. it's pushed forward. I think what's interesting is that specifically with Maya's story, it that one that story came out earlier this year, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, I mean, now it's like you see the impact right away. Which I think just working here and just like seeing it sort of evolve, I think it's just, I mean, I'm still like stunned by it. I mean, how fast it can have an impact. I'm totally here for people using our investigations as a crib sheet to write new state laws. I think more people should do it. Go for it.
Um, all right, so let's let's jump over to the inclusionary housing vote this week. Um, so on Tuesday, City Council President Georgette Gomez failed uh, to override a veto from Mayor Faulkner. This was over uh, Gomez's proposed legislation, which would have changed the rules for what developers have to do when they're building market rate units to provide for low income units. Um, so as is today, you can either build uh, 10% of units in your project on site, or if you don't want to do that, you can pay a fee into a fund that is used to buy um, afford to pay for new affordable housing projects. Um, this would have increased the fee to $22, and it would have uh, lowered the uh, income requirements to get into those units. Um, and then there's some other stuff about how it would have been implemented, how long, which projects would be subject to it, that sort of thing. Um, but it was passed by the city council, only five uh, members of the city council, though, not six, which was crucial because it allowed Mayor Faulkner to veto it. And they would have needed six to override that veto. Uh, they attempted to override that veto this week and were unable to make any headway with Councilwoman Vivian Moreno, who was as a the lone Democrat that voted against the measure was seen as the most gettable vote to move from no right. to yes and therefore override the veto. Yeah. And if you step back a little, I remember back in November when the Democrats won the supermajority on the city council, you went and talked to, you know, politicians and activists and all kinds of progressives about what this supermajority would mean. And what are you going to do? What so are you, you going to do? One, yeah. And the thing that they told you was, we are going to update the inclusionary housing policy. And so far, like many things that go to the city council, it's really not working out. One thing that I am slightly embarrassed by is that I think I've written like two stories over the last two election cycles about the new city council <laughs> and how they were going to, for the first time, do things. Pursue. <laughs> well, m m more specifically, like they were going to put together a specific agenda right. that they were going to move through systematically, much in the way that like an administration often thinks yes. in terms of how it wants to organize its priorities. Uh, and that, you know, this had been something that they had never had before, but there's no reason that they couldn't. And they were going to meet with interest groups and they were going to meet with uh, basically their liberal coalition in town to put together a, a bullet point of list of things that they're going to do over a two year period. I think I've written that story twice and both times it's just clear that whether it's structural factors about how City Hall is organized whether it is uh, about infighting within the coalition, whether it is about the individuals on the city council, whatever it is, it is clear that the city council in the city of San Diego um, has not proven capable of moving through an agenda that makes big changes to city policy. Yeah, would you? That's true. Would you guys say or agree with that San Diego local leaders? have more influence at the state level than they do here in San Diego. I don't I know mean, about if you go through what we just talked about at the top of the show versus what I just there's, said right there's now. Certainly, it's actually pretty, there's pretty certainly clear. a convenient transition from like doing things to not doing yeah. things. So I don't know if it's necessarily a matter of influence so much as for whatever reason they are able to be effective and get things done. 
Well, one one explanation for why that might be the case is that there's a supermajority in the state legislature with a Democratic governor, right. whereas here, yes, you have a supermajority, but you have a Republican mayor. And, you know, I, I think if we were if we we're going to attribute it to an institutional factors, it's in the strong mayor form of government, uh, city departments answer to the mayor. Right. And you can attempt to make policy through the committee process. And certainly they've attempted to do that. Um, I think it would be safe to say at this point, though, that it, it just seems much easier to make policy through an administration where you actually have top down direction of and you can put people in place that are like minded um, and, and, and that, that that's probably an easier process for policymaking than working it through legislatively. So you can't do that in the strong mayor system. Well, you can. I mean, you can. You you know, you, you as the land use and housing committee or the uh, public safety level neighborhoods committee can can pass ideas and direct the uh, staff to implement certain suggestions. But in practice, the mayor is the person who decides who is in charge of development services or decides who the police chief is or decides mm-hmm. who, and so. That just the organizational structure of the city answers to one person, not in practice the city council quite so much, I think. All right. I also want to make sure we mention a story that our colleague Ashley McGlone did this week about a state school bond, Prop 51. I'm not sure if you remember it. Actually, Kevin Faulkner, of all people, was on the committee to get this thing passed, um, interestingly. Um, So this was a multi-billion dollar bond that voters approved in 2016. And the goal, you know, like with local school bonds, was to just inject cash into schools. And the pitch was like, schools are crumbling, they're falling apart, there's leaky roofs, and we need to both build new schools and rehab the facilities that we have already. So Governor Jerry Brown at the time actually opposed this, even though he, you know, injected a lot of money into schools through the state budget. Um, And his critique of it was that because of the way the funds were doled out, he thought only rich schools would primarily benefit because you had to be able to put up matching funds. And just the way it was structured, he thought they would be best positioned to get money, even though they needed it the least. And so Asha McGlone took a look at what local schools have gotten school bond funding from Prop 51 so far, and she found two really interesting findings. The first was that Jerry Brown was essentially right, and that a lot of wealthier schools in the area, ones that don't have a lot of uh, students receiving free and reduced lunch, were able to get the most funds for big projects. So free and reduced lunch in this case is a, a it's a commonly used proxy for the uh, wealth level of a, of right. a given school. How many students are living in poverty? Right. Yeah. So the other thing that she found that I thought was really fascinating, and it's not necessarily you know wrong or illegal, um, but it's just that the way these things shake out and people don't necessarily realize is that many of the schools that got money from Prop 51 got it for projects that were already done before the bond passed. So this bond passed in 2016 and schools like, you know, middle school in Poway got funds for a campus that was finished in 2014. And so, 
you know, they were just reimbursed for that money. But I think it's really fascinating that you're sitting here as a voter saying we need this money to build new schools and the money's actually going to schools that were already built. And coming up in this ne- on this this next cycle we've got another school bond measure at the state level that we'll yes. be voting on as well right yes they just put it on the ballot um, in the last couple of weeks and they actually made sure to address this issue and restructure it so that they believe you know more lower income schools schools that serve uh, different types of students will have better access to the funding can you back it up for me for a sec can you like explain how school bonds are supposed to work uh, so a, a bond is borrowing. Uh, okay. A bond is a is something that a school a school district or a city uh, sells to Wall Street investors uh, in exchange for money and a promise to pay that money back with interest. Okay. Um, so it is it's a loan, okay. and uh, they can be either backed by a general fund, in which case you know the obligation to pay off the bond will simply come from uh, the it, it'll just be debt that the that the city or uh, school district needs to pay um, over its normal the normal course of its budget, or sometimes it can be attached to a new revenue measure such as a uh, tax increase. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, when Sandag passes uh, a transit tax, um, it actually bonds against that revenue, and then it just it can get all that money up front. So if it's going to bring in X amount of dollars over 30 years, well, rather than just collecting that $1 at a time so that you can spend it $1 at a time, they want to get that money as close to the front of that time period as they can so that you can build big things with it. And then you just promise your the investors that you're going to pay them back through the revenue that you collect on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Um, Super simple, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Totally uh, makes sense. <laughs> or, or, or in the case of uh, the uh, you know the the proposed plan, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere, for to build a parking garage in Balboa Park, mm-hmm. uh, the idea for that was that they would uh, have the revenue to build that because they would bond for it. They would borrow that money. Uh, they would that would give them a lump, a lump sum of money to build a new parking garage and a park on top of it in the middle of Balboa Park. Uh, and then they would charge for parking in the parking garage and use that revenue to pay back the the obligation to to clear out the loan. Would it be safe to say that it's easy to pass school bonds, or it has been relatively easy to sp- pass them because when pe- when voters see like we need more money for schools, a lot of them tend to you know vote for it. But there isn't a lot of oversight afterwards when it comes to how that money is being spent. I don't know that people would agree about the oversight. I, I do think that s- school bond measures p- mostly pass. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they also ha- do have a, a lower standard um, than than other other bond measures or than other borrowing measures in uh, California. Um, but most of those measures, j- just like uh, transit measures or whatever, usually come with some sort of uh, specific oversight task force or agency or commission or committee that is responsible for checking through the dollars and cents. Now, you could have a debate about uh, whether those committees do a good job. You um, certainly can. <laughs> um, but it's it, it's probably one that applies to school, school bond spending just as much as it does to transit agency spending or uh, local government funding. 
Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this part of downtown San Diego. We'll have a bonus episode of the podcast in your feed soon. That will be my discussion with Tasha Williamson. She's running for mayor of San Diego and is a community activist. We'll have interviews with the rest of the candidates in this podcast soon, so make sure you keep up with those. Tasha and I had a good, wide-ranging discussion that I do not think you will want to miss. I'm Andrew Keats, assistant editor. Sarah Libby is managing editor. Adriana Eldes is our multimedia producer. The show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana. We'll talk to you next week.